I want to start in my own traditional way again this morning by reminding us of the three important things uh, anytime we open the scriptures or anytime we sit down before taco or the Lord in any form that you are comfortable with. And that is to set our hearts first and foremost on sincerity and earnestness. Uh, Takor said that if you are sincere and earnest uh, in spiritual life, God will take care of the rest. If you're making any other mistakes or errors or need any other teachings, he'll take care of that. It's just that sincerity and that earnestness. So to set our hearts into that space, to be very sincere and earnest. And the second I learned from Jesus when he was asked uh, what the most important thing he taught was, or what was the most important thing in life, actually. And he said, love, the love of God and the love of your neighbor as you love yourself. As you love yourself. And so it's always a great uh, happiness for me to encourage people in that, especially us as fellow spiritual seekers, is to have that love for each other in our time together, to assume love first uh, for each other in our conversations and our dealings with each other, and when we're trying to figure out what each other means, always assume the best of each other and, uh, and call each other higher in that. And then just to revel, really, in the love of God as manifested in Takor or Jesus or Buddha or any of the great teachers. And the third one is to dedicate ourselves to truth, both in searching for it and in our willingness to face it when it involves us and our position in, in uh, our spiritual life. Uh, Takor, when he was throwing away all the pairs of opposites, you know, he was saying, you know, Mother, here, take your good and take your bad, keep them both and give me only pure love for you. And he went through a whole list of things. And when he got to truth, he was about to say, here is truth and here is untruth. But he couldn't say, take them both and give me pure love for you because he realized that truth was fundamental to this, the realization of the divine within. So he held on to truth. So I make a commitment to do my very best to present truth and, uh, and make the commitment in myself that when I hear truth, that I'll respond truthfully, you know, that I won't make excuses for me or for you, and that I'll call both myself and all of us up a notch if we can possibly go there. So with that, I'm going to read a Hafiz poem called A Suspended Blue Ocean. The sky is a suspended blue ocean. The stars are the fish that swim. The planets are the white whales I sometimes hitch a ride on. And the sun and all light have forever fused themselves into my heart and upon my skin. There is only one rule on this wild playground. For every sign Hafiz has ever seen reads the same. They all say, have fun, my dear, my dear, have fun in the beloved's divine game. Oh, in the beloved's wonderful game. So that's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to enjoy myself, and I hope that you enjoy it as well. We're going to dig into the Katu Upanishad, the first chapter this morning. And I'm going to warn you up front, I've been alone for four days now. The swamis are away. I've got the keys to the building. And uh, the bigger warning in that is this is the first time, another first, in my 16 years of monastic life that I've been alone at a center. So I'm going to cut all kinds of capers uh, this morning in this lecture. And the first one, we're going to interpret the Katu Upanishad in a completely new and unfamiliar way and uh, take it in some very, what were very interesting directions for me. Uh, I really enjoyed thinking about this and putting it together. Um, and I ask, quite frankly, if anything that I say doesn't, you don't see it as gelling with what, what's being presented in the scriptures, 
We'll open it up for discussion any time after the lecture in the, in the monastery, and we can dig in further and deeper. Uh, because I, I haven't read anything like this. Uh, this uh, most of this came, you know, I was supposed to be meditating in the shrine, and instead of meditating in the shrine for the last couple of weeks, I've been continually thinking about what I was going to say at this very moment. And uh, most of this lecture kind of was just dumped in there. You know how that kind of thing happens every now and then. You just sort of, wow, that was cool. And then you sit and think about it some more, and more stuff opens up. So we're going to go with that. And uh, I'm going to do what I don't normally do, and that is to kind of do exegesis, you know, one, a couple of lines of scripture at a time and then talk about them. Uh, normally I like topical stuff because you can kind of go a little bit deeper. But since this might take some convincing, I'm going to use the scriptures directly to draw my, uh, my conclusions and ideas from. I'm going to take my glasses off because I get a choice of either seeing you or seeing my notes. And uh, for your sake, I'll choose the notes at the moment. <laughs> So Vajasravasa, desiring reward, performed the Visvajit sacrifice in which he gave away all his property. He had a son named Nachiketa. When the gifts were being distributed, faith entered into the heart of Nachiketa, who was still a boy, and he said to himself, Joyless, surely, are the worlds to which he goes, who gives away cows no longer able to drink, to eat, to give milk, or to cow. He said to his father, to whom will you give me? He said this a second time and then a third time, and his father finally replied, unto death I will give you. I read this a few times, and I read the commentaries on this, and I've heard the commentaries, including the one that we're reading from Swamiji, and I'm not going to cross Swamiji. I'm just going to take a different path from Swamiji, so I'll just <laughs> set that up immediately. <laughs> uh, but it's always been presented that... Uh, that uh, something's wrong with, uh, with uh, you know, Nachiketas' father's sacrifice, that he's just giving old cows and not a worthy sacrifice. Uh, but verse 1 says that he was performing this visvajit sacrifice in which he gave away all of his property. If he gave away all of his property, who can complain about the condition of the cows? It didn't make sense to me that that is what, what uh, our young man, Nachiketas, was complaining about. Nachiketas was beginning spiritual life. Nachiketas was looking at his father's life as a whole, as a sacrifice. Everything his father had done, everything his father had invested in, everything his father had built up, and he saw that all of it would eventually give milk for the last time, would calve for the last time, would pass away. In other words, he was seeing the temporary nature of, of life as you see it. And that got him thinking. And of course, when you start thinking that about the outside world, you turn that on yourself as well. And you think, what, what about me? What about me? And we, we often interpret the last verse there where, where he asks his father three times, what are you going to give me? What, what's going to become of me? And his father says, I'm giving you unto death. A lot of times we think that he cursed him or that, he's, you know, that he got so annoyed with him and just said, I'm going to give you to death. No parent that I know of after three times from their child is going to say, I'm giving you to death. Well, maybe they would, but probably not. I'm going to give you to death. But it occurred to me something different, uh, and that was this. It's our condition. It's our condition. With our birth, which was given to us by our parents, came death. All of our parents have given us to death. 
it's a black perspective on things from a certain, from a certain standpoint, uh, but not necessary from others, so choose the good ones. But we're all given to death, and Nachi Ketis is realizing his father has done the same to him, that with this gift of life comes the, the, the inevitable death and, and closing down of these things. And he begins to think about this, and he thinks about himself. You know, he's turned that light inward, and he says, you know, uh, among many I'm the first, and, among, and I'm, among many I'm the middle, but certainly I'm, I'm not, never the last, which I can't say that about me, but uh, he can say I was never the last. What purpose to the king of death will my father serve today by thus giving me away to him? So he's thinking about his life. What, what are my qualities? Where do I stand? How am I living? I'm kind of, I'm not a bad person. I'm not a great person. I'm, I'm pretty average. I'm a pretty normal guy. There's, there's not a whole lot different going on with me. So what is, my, what is the purpose of this? You know, with, with this idea of death being in front of me, having been given this finite space of time in which everything is passing, which no sacrifice can be enough or can last forever or be grand enough for the experience, what is the purpose of this? What is my life about? So he has this beginning of spiritual life, a new unfolding. Now this is going to take more meaning as we read it, if we understand who we are. When you approach a scripture, this is an idea I'm throwing out, so think about it and then let me know what you think, if it's true or not. When you approach a scripture, you should always find out who you are in that scripture. When you read the Gospel of Ramakrishna, you're M. You're sitting there listening and hearing everything that M said. You know, When you're uh, reading the, uh, the uh, Bhagavad Gita, you're Arjuna. You know, you're learning about your mind and the battlefield of spiritual life and life in general. When you're reading this story, the Kata Upanishad, we are Nachiketas. And everything, the whole situation that Nachiketas is in is opening us up to the condition of our life. From these first few points here of understanding that everything is temporary, everything has an end, to looking inward, wondering where we stand, what we're about, who we are, and then the meaning of life in general, what is important, what's not important. And so he goes and he keeps death as his touchstone, you know, as his touchstone for, for finding truth. And in the story, he does that by going to see him. And of course, he goes to see death and death isn't there. He has to wait for death. He doesn't know how long he's going to be waiting there, but it turns out he waits three days. And... Uh, so he says uh, in verse uh, 7, it says, Verily, like fire, a Brahmin guest enters a house. The householder pacifies him by giving him water and a seat. Bring him water, O king of death. So uh, Nachikasis has been in there. When, when death gets in, he's terribly upset. Oh, my gosh, I've left this guy sitting here for three days. I haven't served him. He's, he's a spiritual seeker. You know, he's, he's looking for truth, and I've ignored him. So he gives him three boons. Okay, now I, I remember in our discussion in class on the Kantu Upanishad, we, were, we started to get concerned about how did Nachiketas get to, the, to Yama's realm? You know, did he walk there? How, how did he get there? And, uh, you know, I had to bite my tongue almost to the point of bleeding not to give away my, one of my favorite points, is that Nachiketas didn't have to go anywhere to be in death's waiting room. Because this morning, every one of us is sitting in death's waiting room. We don't know when he's coming. It might only be three days. Let's hope not. But at some point, death is coming. And all of us are sitting here and waiting in his realm. 
What realm does he, does he rule in if it's not this one? Every single being, animal, man, woman, child, plant, tree, every single thing will bow to death in this, in this realm at one point or another. If this is not the realm of Yama, where is? You know, where is? So here we are. We are Nachiketas. We are spiritual seekers. We're looking at our lives. We're counting on what's important. We're trying to understand life and what it could possibly be about. What is this life when it's measured against death? You know, when you, when you put that post there, what does the rest of this mean? And that's a significant perspective because uh, Vivekananda says in many places that death is the best friend, he says, of a, of a monastic, you know, because by that alone you can measure what's important, you know. That which does not change is the only thing that can stand against that post, you know, of death. So if you keep that touchstone as to what is important in your life, you're going to be okay. If you use that to do your discrimination with, in light of this, am I going to be okay? Your families will fall into place. Your relationships will fall into place. Your desires will fall into place. Your understanding of life will fall into a proper perspective, you know, by holding death as your touchstone, by sitting there with some awareness. So while we wait, uh, so Yama comes and he says, Oh, Brahman, salutations to you. You are a venerable guest and have dwelt in my house three nights without eating. Therefore, choose now three boons, one for each night, O Brahman. May all be well with me. So death here, interestingly enough, is setting up the game for us. While we're sitting here waiting, he's going to fulfill boons for us. He's going to let us go about the business of fulfilling our desires. So while we're here, that's one opportunity that we have. Certainly, as we, as we look around, we have our wishes and our wants, and death has said, I'm going to grant them, but he's only going to grant, grant the sum total of them. You know, I'm only going to grant the sum total of them, not any one in particular, not, not the desire of the moment, but we're going to look at your whole life, and I'll give you the fruit accordingly. Okay, so that's while we're here, and that's, so death has given us these boons while we're waiting for him to... Uh, you know, to answer the rest of our questions. So Nachiketa says, O death, my Gautama, my father, may Gautama, my father, be calm, cheerful, and free from anger toward me. May he recognize me and greet me when I uh, shall have been sent home by you. This I choose as the first of the three boons. Okay. If you look at what he's asking for, it's exactly what you would be asking for, is it, is it not? The first thing you think about, like, I, everybody's imagined dying, right? When you get really mad and you wish you could die so that you could make everybody hurt, you know, like, well, I'm going to die. The first thing you worry about, though, when you think about your death is the people you're leaving behind, your father, in the case of Nachiketas. May he remember me well. May he not be angry with me, you know? May he remember the good times of me. But our real desire which is the second half of his boon, is, and when I see him again, <laughs> your, real, your real desire is not to die, right? I mean, it's like, well, if we have to think about this, well, I want everybody to be, okay. but wait a minute. My, my first, no, I don't want to die. You know, so he's very clever in the way he says that. He doesn't just say, oh, my first boon is that I don't die. His first boon, you know, in the first part he says, oh, 
the, the first one, oh, I hope everybody's all right with me. But the second one, he says, oh, may he recognize me and greet me when I am sent home by you. <laughs> so he's saying, he's asking for the first two things that all of us are asking for. One, may, our, may the people that we love be taken care of. And second of all, I'd rather not die if that's possible, <laughs> if we can deal with that. So death gives him this. He gives him this boon. And he says, asks him for his second one. And Nachiketa says, In the heavenly world, there is no fear whatsoever. You, O death, are not there, and no one is afraid of old age. Leaving behind both hunger and thirst, and out of the reach of sorrow, all rejoice in heaven. You know, O death, the fire, sacrifice, which leads to heaven. Explain it to me, for I am full of faith. The inhabitants of heaven attain immortality. This I ask as my second boon. Okay? So our first concern is always the welfare of the people that we love. Our second concern, I want to go to heaven. (laughs) If there's a good place to go, I want to be there. If there's positive things to come, I want them. I don't want to do any of the other stuff, any of the other unpleasantries. So we see that he's just being purely honest. And he's relating it to his first quandary. What is the meaning of life? He's saying, tell me about this fire sacrifice. You know, how, how, how does one, what does one sacrifice? What does one have to do? What does, how does one spend this life in order to attain heaven, in order to attain the good things in the hereafter? And Yama says, I know well the fire sacrifice which leads to heaven, and I will explain it to you. Listen to me. Know this fire to be the means of attaining heaven. It is the support of the universe. It is hidden in the hearts of the wise. All right. Now, it's interesting, and uh, I'm going to read a couple more verses before I get to the main point of this, but it's interesting to me that this seems like it would be the main point of the Upanishad, right? I mean, death is about to tell him about the sacrifice that's going to get him to heaven, you know, where there's never any sorrow, there's never any fear of death, all things are great. So when I first read this Upanishad, I was like, cool, I get out my pen and my paper and I go, and I read a couple more verses and realize that death never tells him, doesn't describe the sacrifice, doesn't, you know, mentions that there's some bricks involved and that there's a certain arrangement for them, but he doesn't tell you how many or what that arrangement is or what needs to be done. That made me really scratch my head. I thought, now, wait a minute, (laughs) you know, you're about to tell me, the meaning of life and how to get to heaven and what this is all about. And you're telling me there's a sacrifice involved and then you're not telling me anything. You're not telling me how to do it. Okay. It goes on these next two verses. Uh, Yama tells him about the fire, which is the source of the worlds and what bricks were to be gathered for the altar and how many and how the sacrificial fire was to be lighted. Nachiketa too repeated all of this as it had been told to him. And Yama being pleased with him spoke again, High-souled death, being well-pleased, said to Nachiketa, I will give you another boon. This fire shall be named after you. Take also from me this many-colored chain. Okay. There's a couple of things, a couple of different places you can go with this scripture. But when I thought about it, my first frustration was that it tells me very clearly that Nachiketa gets this special instruction, which for some reason... The Upanishad, the very source of my truth, <laughs> is not telling me. <laughs> I don't get to read the notes that Nachiketas repeated back to death to make sure he got it all right. 
So when that happens in the scripture, I usually assume that that must not be the point. There must be something else going on here that I'm not grasping. And so what is this that we're not understanding? Uh, that I would think this, this ritual sacrifice would be the point, and then death is not, the scripture's not giving me any details on it. And in verse 14, I think the, 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 the secret is here. It's, it's actually, it, it, it points back to Nachiketas' first concern when he talks about his father's sacrifice and talks about, and which broadens out kind of to more, in, from the perspective we're taking today anyway, to, to the nature of his father's life, just seeing the sum total of everything in, in his father's life was temporary, impermanent. Everything grew old, everything died, everything gave birth for the last time, gave milk for the last time. And in verse 14, uh, Yama says something very important. This fire is the support of the universe. It is hidden in the hearts of the wise. Something very beautiful. He's talking about this fire that burns in you, where your spirit meets the flesh, where, where this life is generated. It's the fire you feed by what you eat. It's the fire that you feed by what you look at, and it's the fire that you feed by what you put in your ears, and it's the fire you feed by what you touch. And so what death is giving him is the secret of how to live. What things do you sacrifice? What things do you take in through your five senses and burn in this fire that is your life, that is the size of the thumb that sits, you know, behind the heart in that secret place, that inner cave, that inner chamber. How is it and what is it that should be placed on that fire and offered? This fire burns in the cave of the heart. If you look at any of the other scriptures, they talk about this fire. They don't call it Nachiketas' fire. They don't call it the sacrificial fire. They're coming from a different angle. But you can hear it in, in, uh, in, the, in the yoga sutras and, and uh, well, actually, just many of the scriptures. Even Tucker talks about it at some time. It's the inner shrine of your heart. And what you burn on it, those things that you take in and put there, you know, those are then the smoke from that burning. The smoke from that burning becomes your prayers, becomes what you are asking for in this world. So that, and you get them. You get everything. You get the fruits of everything that you put on this fire. You know, so it's something, it's a matter of being very aware of, you know, to, to, to understand and learn what it is that you're taking in during the day. Most of us are very unaware of what we're listening to, very unaware of what we're looking at, you know, most of the time, very unconcerned with what the words we're hearing or the things we're witnessing. And, uh, you know, we only get really aware when we're either purposely looking at good things or purposely going after bad things, but anything in the middle we don't pay a lot of attention to. But this is your sacrificial fire, and God has named it after you. Your body has been given your name. Nachiketas' fire was given his name. Your fire and your sacrificial place has been given your name. What do you burn on it? What do you offer to that fire? And what is it producing? And what is it asking the Lord for in return? Because that is what you will get. Death is fulfilling our boons. He's giving us what we ask for in this waiting room as we sit here before him. So it's very important to become aware of that. God never says no. 
Ramakrishna, uh, well, actually, Vivekananda is asked, what is the efficacy of prayer in, in his complete works, volume five? And he answers, by prayer, one's subtle powers are easily roused, and if consciously done, all desires may be fulfilled by it. But done unconsciously, one, perhaps in ten, is fulfilled. Such prayer, however, is selfish and should therefore be discarded. I brought this verse up mostly because of that, his references to a couple of things. One is that uh, this, your prayers are, if you can focus your mind, if you become aware of the way that you live, if you, if you can purposely live your life to meet the, your realization, to know God, to see the divine, to find that realization, or, or any other singular purpose, but he discourages us from going after anything else. Uh, if you can focus that prayer, it will come. God always says yes to your prayers, you know, but if you're praying unconsciously, which means you're not paying attention and you're just kind of putting it all on there, whatever, you know, ah, there it is, uh, then it seems like only one in ten of those prayers are answered. And it's not so much that it's because only one in ten of them is prayer, it's because you really only remember praying one, or <laughs> one in ten of them. All the other ones were kind of, you know, oops, <laughs> didn't mean to ask for that, uh, but you got it. And also that whole scattering of things, you know, I always like to use that example. If you, if you wanted to become famous, you shouldn't have slept through the audition. You know, it's like you make choices in life. You might say, I want to be famous, but then the actions of your life, you didn't memorize your lines. You didn't take dance classes. You didn't remember to, you know, to get to the audition on time, you know, uh, all of those things. So we're, we're praying all the time in what we're doing. You know, by how we're living our life, we're asking for something, and a lot of times the conscious prayer, the one that's in our mind, is not the sub, the subtle prayer. We're not following through, and that's the importance of meditation. You know, to be able to sit there in silence, so that those things that are conscious can then work their way through and kind of fall through the whole system and get everything lined up. You know, get your understandings lined up, and when you're sitting there with with your chosen ideal, you know, with Thakur or Ma or Jesus or Buddha sit there conscious of their presence, just that awareness of them being there with you is what straightens all of that out and brings consciousness and the light of awareness to what you're asking for and to what's going on in the mind and in your body and uh, to what your prayer, what the content of your prayer is. Nachiketa says, There is doubt about a man when he's dead. Some say that he exists, others that he does not. This I should like to know. Taught by you, this is the third of my boons. Yama said, on this subject, even the gods formerly had their doubts. It is not easy to understand the nature of Atman. It is very subtle. Choose another boon, O Nachiketa. Do not press me. Release me from that boon. Nachiketa says, O death, even the gods have their doubts about this subject, and you have declared it to be not easy to understand. But another teacher like you cannot be found, and surely no other boon is comparable to this. Yama said, Choose sons, grandsons, who will live a hundred years. Choose elephants, choose horses, herds of cattle, gold. Choose a vast domain on earth. Live here as many years as you desire. If you deem any other boon equal to that, choose it. Choose wealth, choose a long life. Be the king, O Nachiketa, of this whole wide earth. I will make you the enjoyer of all desire. Whatever desires are difficult to satisfy in this world of mortals, choose them as you wish. These fair maidens with their chariots and musical instruments, men cannot obtain them. 
I give them to you, and they will wait upon you. But do not ask me about death. All right. (laughs) That's our situation exactly. That's our situation exactly. We're sitting here as spiritual seekers asking this question of ourselves and of this life. What is the meaning? What is the purpose of this? What happens? What is death? What is the nature of death? What is this all about? And we've been told by every teacher, not just death, that that is very subtle, very difficult to understand. Instead of giving you that information, I'll give you anything else. I'll give you anything else. Nachiketa says, O death, these endure only until tomorrow. Furthermore, they exhaust the vigor of all the sense organs. Even the longest life is short indeed. Keep your horses. Keep your dances and your songs for yourself. Wealth can never make a man happy. Moreover, since I have beheld you, I shall certainly obtain wealth. I shall also live as long as you rule. Therefore, no boon will be accepted by me, but the one that I have asked for. Who among decaying mortals here below have approached the undecaying immortals and coming to know that his higher needs may be fulfilled by them would exult in a long life after he had pondered the pleasures arising from beauty and song? Tell me, O death, of that great hereafter about which a man has his doubts. This is this is the most important part to me of this story. It's maintaining that ideal, that dream, that vision for your spiritual life. You are being offered anything you want in this world. Death has said, if, if you can just lose interest in that one question, the nature of things, the nature of yourself, the nature of this world in relation to death, if you can put aside that, I'll give you the greatest job. I'll, I'll give you the best wife. I'll move you to, you know, Washington, D.C. and <laughs> pop you in a big old house right on the Potomac. You know, God will, God, I mean, death will offer, he's offering you anything. He's offering you anything. The unfortunate thing is so many times we take it. We stop thinking, you know, we stop worrying or concerning ourselves with the important things in life. And we buy into it. We forget, we forget our, our situation. We forget our plight. We forget what we're really looking for. We forget death as our teacher. And we get distracted. We get pulled to the left and pulled to the right. So the question this morning is, you can have anything. This world is for you. All of your desires will be fulfilled. Only ask. Ask clearly and ask straightforwardly, and it's yours. What will you ask for? But don't forget these words of Nachiketas. O death, these things endure only until tomorrow. They exhaust the vigor of all the sense organs. Which means, in the end... It's all going to go away, and you're just going to be tired. (laughs) You're just going to be tired. Even the longest life is short indeed. Even if you were given another 700 years to live, that 699th year is going to come, and you're going to be in the exact same situation. So long life makes no difference. It's just a matter of putting off the inevitable. Don't look for these things. 
Keep your horses, keep your dances and songs for yourself. Wealth can never make a man happy. Wealth can never make a man happy. You know, this is something, a small aside from one of my trips to India. It was my first one, actually. I saw, you know, it was my first trip, and so I think every Westerner on their first trip to India uh, sees the poverty and the, the struggle for life that goes on there. That's the first thing I think many people see. Um, there's so much more beyond that, but that's the first thing you see and the first thing you have to deal with. But in that, I saw more smiles, uh, more alive faces, uh, people engaged. You know, when they were walking down the streets, I, I didn't realize this until I came back. You know, when I came back to San Francisco, which frankly is one of the most beautiful cities in the world as far as I've seen, and uh, certainly one of the richest. And when I got back to San Francisco and walked down the street, I noticed such a, a stone vacancy to the normal face on the street, just a complete hollowness, you know, like a kind of a set jaw and a determination to go somewhere, but certainly not being where they were. They're always in between. Whenever you see somebody, they're always between points, it seems like, here. And in India, I felt much more like people were there. They were where I saw them. You know, they, <laughs> they weren't between this point and that point. They were, they were right there. And you kind of have to be, otherwise you're going to get run over by a pig or a horse or, <laughs> you know, or some rickshaw is going to come out of nowhere. So you kind of have to be hyper-present. But in that, in that it, this is something that I really saw there. And I saw it in particular in Rishikesh. I went uh, in Rishikesh and found uh, a, a sadhu, Swami Rudratmanando is his name. And he was an independent Swami, which I didn't know what that meant at the time. But he was, uh, I found him, I was hiking in the uh, jungle along the Ganga there. And uh, a person coming the other way said, oh, are you going to see the Swami? And I said, I, what Swami? And he said, oh, the Swami Rudramananda. I said, no. I, he said, you should. He's a great soul. You should go see him. And he gave me instructions. He said, go down. There's an orange gate. Go through that orange gate. And there's a very small hut. Go to that hut and you'll find him there. So I was like, hey, what, why not? <laughs> so I went down there, and I found a very small hut. I mean, it was like six feet by six feet, little thatched roof over a, a, a stone facade. And uh, this old man, probably maybe five feet tall, comes out with just a little uh, wrap around his waist and is just so happy to see me, <laughs> just thrilled to see me, runs over, takes me by the arm. I can't understand a word he's saying, but he's, I, I have made his day. And he takes my arm and he pulls me over to his bathing ghat right there where it steps down into the Ganga, and he pushes me, go, 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 go. So I go and I get in the Ganga, and he says, go. So I dipped in the Ganga, come, come. And he takes my arm again and pulls me up, pulls me into his, his, his little couture there and sits me down on this grass mat that's got a hole worn right through the middle. And I sit down on that grass mat, and for the next 45 minutes he chants in a language I never heard of, from a book I'd never seen, about something I had no idea about. Uh, I know now that he was chanting the Gita. At the time I knew nothing. But I sat there for the, fur, for the full 45 minutes and watched this man be the happiest person I had ever met, ever even seen. He sat there, and as he got going on that chanting, he began to sway and sway, and his smile became so big it was going to in danger of swallowing his face. 
and tears began to fall down his, come down his cheeks and he would just, just blissfully went on for 45 minutes, 45 minutes. And when it was over, he got up just as happy and kind of teetered over to me, took my arm and led me to the gate and told me to come back. I went back, I was in Rishikesh for 10 days, I went back every afternoon to sit there and listen to something that I didn't understand at all. Never understood a word, but sat there for 45 minutes every day watching someone be happy. Watching someone be utterly, thoroughly, and completely happy with nothing except a five-by-five hut on the river with a little wrap around his waist. He didn't even have a cabinet. I mean, there was nothing else in that room. <laughs> there was a grass mat and the thing around his waist. And I came to find out that a, a rich man had established several of these huts along the river for sadhus and that he would come once a day with a bowl of food. And that's uh, for, for the sadhu. And this man, in that condition, in that country, without my knowing anything, showed me the way showed me the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. So when Nachiketa says to me, wealth can never make a man happy, I can finally believe him. I can finally believe him and understand there's something much more available than wealth that can make a man happy. Moreover, since I have beheld you, I shall certainly obtain wealth. (laughs) I shall also live as long as you rule. Therefore, no boon, no boon will be accepted by me but the one that I have asked for. Who among the mortals below would ask for anything else if they were to see just a moment of, of, the, of the infinite, if they were to have a taste of, of infinity for even the briefest second, who could come back and ask for wealth, for a big house, for a big family, for nice cars, for cool tablets, <laughs> these kinds of things. So death is asking you that question this morning, laying it out before you. You can have anything, but what have you come asking for? And how resolved are you to get it? Takor went all the way to the point of suicide. All the way to the point of suicide. You know, so there's that story. I, I wish I had brought the scripture with me, but he he shares his experience where he just, his desperation for realization, for understanding, for, for seeing God had become so unmanageable, so beyond his pale of being able to deal with it, that he was in the shrine and he goes up and literally takes the sword out of the statue's hand, out of Mother Kali's hand, in order to kill himself because he can't take it. This was... <laughs> I thought about this yesterday, actually, when I was in here doing the worship in the morning. And I was looking, uh, you know, I shared this with somebody yesterday in the library, but I was thinking about the condition of my own self, you know, my own life. And I was telling Takor, I was complaining, okay, I was complaining. And I was, I was saying, I was saying, look, you're perfect. You were born perfect. The only attachment you had was for the devotees of God to enjoy the love of God and the devotees. That's a pretty good set of karma right there. That's, that's pretty advantageous. And I said, even in that state, you were driven to suicide. And I said, think about the rest of us, Takwar. Think about every one of us in this room, Takwar. We're not even anywhere near 
that level of perfection. We don't have any of those advantages. Think of our pain. Think of our hurt. Think of our desperation. You know, <laughs> where, where is mother for that? You know, and I, say, I purposely present that even now to the shrine on behalf of all of us. But you have to find that intensity. And the reason that we don't weep is not because we don't hurt. The reason that we're not running up to take the sword off the shrine, we don't have one, but the reason we're not doing it anyway (laughs) (laughs) is the fact that we're so distracted. We have found many other ways to kill that pain. You know, we call a friend, we get bored, we go to a movie, you know, we get depressed, we have a drink or go for a long walk or invite our best friend over. You know, we've got a million gods and goddesses that we've established that we take refuge in, you know, to take care of that pain in little tiny quantities, but all the time to keep that distraction. But look at the boldness of Nachiketas. Look at the boldness of Nachiketas. He stared it right in the face. He understood, I have been sent to death. This body, anything it's invested in, is going to end, will come to nothing. You know, like Mother says, we'll come to three pounds of ashes in the end. He stared it straight in the eye, and when he was given the options for a thousand other deities to fulfill his desires, to distract his mind, to give him comforts of any kind, in any quantity, he didn't take his eyes off of that measurement for a moment, didn't take his eyes off of death for a moment, and answered accordingly, No other boon is worthy of my asking other than this one, O death. Tell me of the great hereafter, about which man has his doubts. This is Nachiketas. I'm going to leave us at that point today because the second chapter goes all the way in to this sacrifice. So here we are this morning. We've been given to death by our parents We've come to realize and see that everything has an end, is temporary, and cannot fulfill us. We've been offered anything except the truth. All you have to do is name it. But we have one example of a young man who took nothing. And we have in our, the man that we worship, the man that we hold closest to our hearts, had the same resolution, went for nothing. Imagine if Takor had come up with something else. <laughs> Imagine we're, we wouldn't be here this morning. None of us would be here. None of us would feel any of the inspirations that we have from that life. So, you know, think of the people that... Ah, that's probably not a good thought. I'm going to finish it, though. Think of the people that, that could be inspired by your choice, by your choices, to live for the divine alone, to live for love alone. Think of the people that you could lift up that would remember you, you know, and that and that life. Utterly unimportant stuff. That's not what we're after. I understand that. But it's the idea that, like Takor, he didn't live for that either. And yet, here we are. And what he's done for us in that. So live like the Master. Don't go for anything else. Be conscious of the prayers that you pray. Be conscious of everything you listen to, everything you look at, everything you feel and touch, everything that you eat. Do everything as worship. They are your prayer. They are what you're asking God for. Ask for him that one thing, that knowledge of that self, the knowledge 
that is the only thing that will last forever. At this party, I don't want to have to be the only one here telling all of the secrets, filling up all the bowls at this party, taking all of the laughs. I would like you to start putting things on the table that can also feed the soul the way that I do. That way we can invite a hell of a lot more friends. We'll take a few moments to meditate. That last poem that I read was also, it was a poem, by the way, I wasn't just rambling. It was a poem by Hafiz called This Party. Jai Thakur, Jai Ma, Jai Swamiji.